0: Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins and I'm on a computer screen with Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper mirison Bowie.
1: Hello, Barney.
0: And for this episode, we are thrilled to welcome the legendary Robert Greenfield (laughs) all the way from California. Hello, Robert. Hey, Barney. Gentlemen, how are you? Hi. Hi. Great to see you. Thanks for getting up maybe a little earlier than you usually would. Robert is one of the great music writers and biographers, and we're going to talk to him about his career, his books, and specifically about the Rolling Stones in the magnificent year that was 1972. How did you get rolling as a rock writer, Robert? Well, I had begun, this is
2: so boring to me, but then it's my life. So why wouldn't it be? I uh, began writing, <laughs> all I ever wanted to be <clears throat> was a sports writer covering the Brooklyn Dodgers, which won't mean that much in London. But they left Brooklyn when I was 13, which was the beginning of my adulthood. <laughs> <laughs> Learning <it. laughs> kind of a force, you know, this is the way it's going to be, son, you know, and I always <laughs> loved music, mad about music. Uh, did Oh, I guess here's the answer. When I went to journalism school at Columbia, I did my master's thesis on the Apollo Theater. And I was I was I mean, everything links into another story on the English tour with the Stones in the spring. Goodbye, Great Britain of 71. uh, We were leaving Newcastle to go to Manchester. We were driving over the Apennines. And when I say we, it was Ian Stewart at the wheel, and Georgia Bergman, who ran their lives at that point in the front seat. And Stu basically hated me because I was an out-and-out hippie, and it's okay, you know, I got it. And, And I was just talking, as I am right now, sitting in the back seat. The first thing I did was I made him stop twice so I could go to the bathroom by the side of the road, and he said to me, oh, you're worse than Brian was which I thought was incredible, you know, and, and, and then I was just because, I mean, here's the thing. And, Barney, you know this. Nobody knew anything back then. There was no Internet. When you met someone, you didn't know who they were. You didn't know everything they had ever done and where they were born. And I didn't have a clue as who Stu really was. Or, and so I was talking about what I had just said to you. That had done my master's thesis at the Apollo, and I was backstage all the time. James Brown and Dionne Warwick and just, you know, Joe Tex and all these great acts and great black comedy. I was a different era in the world. And now oh, I actually said and one of the great accomplishments of my life was I'd be there for the early show in the afternoon. It was only attended by winos and junkies. And Hal Jackson, who was a disc jockey in New Jersey, did not show up to announce the show. And I'd been there long enough that they knew me. And the backstage manager said to me, you can read, can't you? I said, yeah. <laughs> and so the act list was taped to a standing microphone. And I got to say, ladies and gentlemen, welcome. To- I introduced the show, okay, off stage, Fantastic. And it's this- been downtown oh and downhill, downhill. So I'm <laughs> talking <laughs> like this. And I'm telling the right. Well, I mean, does it get better than that? To introduce, wow. you know, every act by name. You know, the Cavalcade show, right? They come out and do three songs. They're you know, like to eight or nine acts. And I'm just talking to Blue Street because that's what I do. Well, I didn't know that the first time the Stones ever came to New York, the first place they went with, you know, was the Apollo, and and after that, Stu and I were fine. <laughs> because and this is a point I'd like to make through all this and Barney understands this and you guys understand it and it's why I value Rock's Back Pages as an archive so deeply That in the course of all this work and all this research you know you meet all kinds of people it's really about do you love the music if you really love the music then I can excuse a lot of outrageous behavior okay <laughs> Because you're in it for the right reason, right? This is what we love. And so that, I guess from that, then I I was a rock critic, which I hated for Boston After Dark. And then I just kept submitting articles that people threw away, classic story, Village Voice. And then a great woman named Lorraine Alterman, who has been all over your stuff. I love, you know, I got to thank her two years ago after 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. She read something I wrote that I sent her. She wanted to give me a job in New York. I'd had it with America at that point. I said, no, I'm going to London. And, well, there's a job there. As it turned out, that didn't really work out. And then I came back, Isla White, ran into Andrew Bailey, who will come across, come up in this conversation more than once. And Andrew kind of was, you know, I can't explain it. He, he, we were. In a, and then I'll tell you how I got on the stone story. So Andrew and I could not, <laughs> not have been more different, you know. He was an insider in the music business in London. He'd worked for Variety. He knew everybody. One of the great hustlers of all time. We went to lunch with Georgia Bergman one day. And I'll say this, and I think this is the way it was back then. The music business was so small in London that if you went to lunch with somebody, you could walk out with a record contract. I mean, anything could happen at lunch. And Georgia Bergman was there. And I said, hey, you know, I'd just like to go on this tour. I just want to hang out. And God knows why. I think because of the power of Rolling Stone magazine It didn't have to do with me personally. That's how it all began. That's how I got to the Stones.
0: So. Wow. And that
2: tour was astonishing that that we're not going to talk about it at length unless you want to. But they played town halls. They did two shows a night and they were playing stuff off Sticky Fingers. Sticky Fingers wasn't out yet. So it was incredible to be with them in that situation.
3: What's that, the 71 English tour?
2: Exactly. Farewell, goodbye, Great
3: Britain. It's absolutely fantastic because at least some of that's been released now, the, the, the really? live recordings. Yes. And aside from the fact that dear old Keith can't sing in tune as a backing singer, it's, fan- <laughs> it's fantastic stuff. It's it really so... great live Rolling Stones.
2: Well, I would, you know, again, the great fortunate nature of my life. I, I was standing at the piano next to Chipmunk. Monk. Right. Every show, I'd you know, listen, I'd seen a lot of music to that point in time because I'd spent a year and a half going every weekend to Fillmore East, late shows, seeing everybody. Mm-hmm. So And, you know, I first started going to rock and roll shows when I was 15, Murray the K show, the Easter show at the Brooklyn Fox. So I knew that I had never seen anybody like them. They were astonishing. They, mm-hmm. No backup singers, just Keith, just Mick. You know, Jim Price and Bobby Keys on horns. Wow. You know, there's no, no way else to explain it. I mean, you had to see these sure. town halls. You know what town halls in England were like, what, 2,000 people, maybe? Yeah. And, yes, and we got on public. We got on trains. They rode trains. They flew commercial back from Glasgow, BEA. There was no security. I mean, it was mm-hmm. England. It was England at the end of a certain era where you could do this, you know. It was an extraordinary experience. And then the Stone Store in America bore no relationship to that.
0: Do you mind if we just if we just park the stones for two seconds? Because I just wanted to ask you two things. One, the Rolling Stone Office or Bureau in London. Ah. Was that was that just you and Andrew, basically, or did it expand beyond that?
2: The Rolling Stone office in London was at twenty eight A 28A Newman Street, which right. I reached through this passage, Newman Passage, which I've yes. since seen in a million movies. You know what I mean? It's so incredible for me. It was just an incredible place to walk through every day. And now it's become an icon. It looks like something out of Charles Dickens. It was myself, Andrew Bailey. Oh, yeah. This great woman, Fiona Bauer, and a great guy who (laughs) had a band named Bronx Cheer, Brian Cookman. That was it. And there'd be people coming in and out. It was like a social scene. You know, everybody knew everybody back then. And most of my friends, convincingly or conversely or conversationally, worked for friends which was right. the, hippie, the hippie publication on Portobello. And so... Which came out of the
3: British edition of Rolling correct. Stone. Correct. The they place.
2: originally called Friends of Rolling Stone. That's
3: right. Yeah, and, yeah. And so
2: they were the hippies, and I was kind of a hippie. And, but there was a great communal thing between everybody who wrote about rock music then. You knew everybody. You knew everybody who worked at mm-hmm. NME, everybody who worked at Melody Maker and Disc. And it was such a large music business press,
0: Right. Yeah. Well, you mentioned hippies. So I just want to take you briefly to the state you live in. I don't know how long you've lived there, but since at least four of your books have been about California and specifically like Northern California, you're you're fantastic. (laughs) Bill Graham book, your Jerry Garcia biography, then there's Owsley and also John Perry Barlow. So when did you when did you move to California well, I was in London for almost two years, and, right. you know, I kind of got to a
2: point where it sounds awful, but they were asking me to write about bands that I didn't really, you know, like, who cares? Like, this is, I always wanted to be a real writer, whatever that means. And so I left, uh, 11, I don't know what it means now, to be honest with you, <laughs> but I, I left, uh, uh, I think it means you're able to pay the bill. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> I said you got that. You finally
0: found out. Yeah,
2: that's my big breakthrough. You're supposed to earn a living at this, not just for fun and pain, right? So, I I moved to Northern California, and I have lived here ever since. That was okay. So I I left London in seventy. Help me. I know that seventy, late seventy one. Yes, because by the spring of seventy two. I was then living in Los Angeles and Mick and Keith were living on Stone Canyon Road, getting ready for the 72 tour. And I had already been with Keith in the south of France. Right. And I did the Rolling Stone interview, which was just around this time of year. I had been at the Cannes Film Festival and I went to his house and, I, you know, I don't know. There are so many stories here, but I'll just if I could tell this one quickly, you're a bigger indulgence. So I get notice I was on the English tour with Keith. And the Stones. I'd never said a word to Keith because he was a frightening human being. Uh, uh, <laughs> I mean, an awesome, fearsome creature. It's the only way I can describe him. And also, I didn't know this. He was smacked out and traveling with Graham Parsons and Anita and their young son Marlon. And they were separate. They were never with the band. They got to every gig late, but they made the show. So, so you didn't talk to him. What were you going to say? You know, we did did break into a dressing room together in Brighton, England. But <laughs> it, it, that's another story. So, anyway, I'm, I'm in, con, but I've never talked to him. You know, and I'm in Con for the festival and writing about somebody there. I get a notice that I'm to go see Keith at this villa. I get an address because I'm going to do the Rolling Stone interview with. So, like, I was a very ambitious young boy. And this is a big step. You know, I could could never get into the back of the magazine. They kept running my stuff up front with the news articles. The the English tour was the first article I had in the back. So I had this, I got to the festival late, and I got this, like, James Bond, Aston Martin-like sports car, which I didn't want. And it had a stick shift. And I had never learned how to drive a stick <laughs> <laughs> So so now I gotta go see Key. And I didn't drive, I was just in con. I parked it. Finish, you know. So now I get in this mega car and I'm on the Corniche, if you know the French Riviera, and I can't get out a second. <laughs> and and like the French, we won't comment on the French, are going mad. Like they're not just, I, I speak French. I learned in high school. They are calling my mother. Or they're throwing me the, they're passing me and fuck you. You know, they're screaming at me out, and I'm sweating and still in second. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> now I, I get to cut, which in itself is like, you know, welcome to the hall of the mountain King, you know, uh, <laughs> King, you know, it's incredibly impressive. The gate alone. And I go up to the door, and here's, you know, I ask for Keith if he's there, you know, in French to the woman, you know. Okay, and I'm standing there. One of these moments, you know what I mean? It's like, but I was standing at the threshold. I didn't realize it. So here comes Keith. He looks unbelievable, you know, no shirt. And he says, oh, Bob Greenfield, man. And he hugs me. Wow. And he he says, "Yeah, man, you'll come here, you know, we're going to do this right, you know, you'll stay here. Maybe the conversation lasted five minutes and eighteen seconds.. Okay, I get back in a sports car, and I have become fangio i'm I'm shifting into fourth. I'm passing guys. I have been empowered by the the power of the star. you know what I mean i'm I can drive." All of a sudden, I'm good, you know, and and this is crazy, but that's what they were like then, mm, and right. especially in the south of France, it was mm-hmm. so powerful,
0: you know, each of them oh, in their wow. own way. Sorry, just the side road there. No, I love oh, that's that. <laughs> taking, that's Jasper is taking Jasper taking driving lessons at the moment.
4: Call, call, yeah.
2: Oh, dear. Um, so where, where so, are we, Barty? Go
0: ahead. Well, I mean, I just want to say, I mean, you know, I've been so obsessed with Excel on Main Street for so many years. It's amazing to sort of think uh, of you just going to Nelcott with none of the history, none of the preconceptions, no pre- preconceptions none of the no stories. Sense. It was just a villa to you rather than a piece of rock and roll mythology. So that's well, in itself is just extraordinary. It, it, it was so astonishingly beautiful there. I mean, you
2: could not be, you know, you were living in like another world. It was another world. But they, which I've come to realize all in retrospect, you know, because I had written accurately about the English tour while protecting them, right. you know, they trusted me. And so... It was so different then and so small. But the villa, I mean, talk about people coming and going. I mean, one of the great moments is, I remember Anita saying once, very, very heartbreakingly, why is it nobody ever says goodbye? Because it was, uh, yeah, because you didn't know who they were. I've written about all of this, of course, 18 people at lunch, which went on for four hours, you know. And I was lucky. I was there in the garden period. Keith was not using you know, a lot of smoking of hashish, a lot of drinking of wine. But it was, a you know, incredibly, I can't explain it. But, you know, of course, I couldn't get him to finish the interview. I mean, <laughs> you know, we started <laughs> off great. And then every day I'd get up with the recorder and I'd look at him and then we'd be on the speedboat. Nicknamed, called the Mandrax. That was the name of the boat. Of course. <laughs> 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 I mean, well, I finally had to summon Marshall Chess. I'd been there two weeks and I was losing my mind, okay? Because I just wanted to get it done. And Marshall basically showed up and took Keith and I outside and we sat under this tree. And then I'll go into one last story here. And we finished the interview and then I went off and lived somewhere for a week, transcribed it all. Now, here's the moment. Now, I go back to Nelkut because I got to show it to him. You know, you have to. It was accuracy. And Did I get anything wrong? Is there anything you want to take out? just courtesy. I mean maybe now that'd be looked on as, you know, unfair journalism, but it made sense to, back then to even everybody. Jan would have Jan Wenner would have agreed this is what you do. So I go back there and Keith is reading it in the kitchen. And he's smoking constantly. And he's as he's reading, he's flicking the pages on the floor. Okay? And this thing is like 98 pages long and I'm there's nothing worse than watching somebody read what you've written no matter what it is, like you'd rather hang yourself, okay? I don't want to look at you when you're reading anything that I've written that I can't stand, okay? So there he is, smoking, reading, pages on the floor, takes 20 minutes, half an hour. finally looks up to me and says, I said it, man, print it. And for me, that's the acid test. Fantastic. Didn't take a... And then, and then, Jan Wenner edited some of it out. Keith talking about the mafia running the record business. <laughs> <laughs> Funny though, he kind of took that out, you know. So, I mean, again, if we're just talking about Keith, Keith had theories, and you couldn't not. It was a circus. Keith believed, and I can say this now; he's not with Keith. Absolutely verified said to me, "This is not the real Tina Turner." I said, "Keith, what are you talking about?" I killed the original Tina Turner. This is, I mean, you know, in that in that <laughs> environment, I don't know what I'm going to challenge him and say, hey, you're wrong,
0: you know? But they <laughs> lived in an alternate, it was another world. you know. totally. Wow. So, that is amazing. If we jump forward to the first of the, because on the homepage, it's all going to be about 1972. And so- okay. This, this, I think, is the next big Stones piece that you wrote. And you're, you're back in LA, whereas where, you've already told us you were living at that time. And it kind of yeah. starts, you're in a big black Mercedes with Mick Jagger at the wheel and you're on the way to Wally Hyde's oh, right, for man. another attempt at mixing Tumbling Dice, which is just amazing. It does right there and as the reader, you are taken to the studio, and there's this incredible conversation with Andy Johns, the engineer. I mean, it's just fantastic. Mick says, I want the snares to crack and the voices to float. <laughs> it's tricky, all right? You think you've got the voices sussed, and all of a sudden, the backing track seems so ordinaire. He says, He's obviously going <laughs> <laughs> to You do that
5: guy. well, <laughs> you I do
0: know. that well, party. That's really oh, the way it so- was. Anyway, it's they, just a,
2: it's wonderful. Listen, the, 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 uh, one of those articles ends with, you know, Marshall Chess like throwing his hands up in terms of the level of obsession. And this is another reason I always gave them respect and gave none of this was casual to them. After they did one bad show on the English tour, Jagger was disconsolate sitting on the steps with Bianca holding his hand that they had done a bad show. You know, again, if you've seen a lot of music and, you know, as Bill Graham once said, he he put on Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs. And 20 minutes into the set, he saw Sam looking at his watch on stage to see how long he had left before he could get off. (laughs) And for Bill, that (laughs) was he never booked him again. That's it, bro. Yeah. They cared and they were. Listen, as I've written, can I just quote myself until we all go home. You know, exile, <laughs> Ex- Ex- exile is a is a an album recorded under the influence of heroin and mixed under the influence of cocaine. They never got tumbling dice right. It never sounded right to me. It still doesn't sound right. Really, it was a mess. It's, oh, sounds no. pretty oh. good to me. It sounds oh. pretty damn oh. good to me. Well, listen, <laughs> we, 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 we <laughs> honestly are, we say are, that. <laughs> We're fifty years on from the tour. Sure. And and one of the more minor astonishing facts in my life is that Exile has come to be recognized as their masterpiece. When it came out, and the person who reviewed it for Rolling Stone magazine was Lenny Kay. Yeah. Sure. Patty Smith group. No one understood it. It's like double album. Uh, well,
3: Barney, you're gonna play the clip because this yeah. is a pretty good pretty good place to listen to this clip. Because I will come back after the clip and say Yeah. It was really well-reviewed. There's a myth that, that Exile was badly reviewed. Okay. Except for Lenny Cabe being slightly cagey about it in Rolling Stone. Let's hear what, Keith.
0: So this is me yeah. talking to Keith in 1997. Yeah. Do you recall being sort of miffed by any of the, the negative reviews that Exile and Main Street had when it came out? Um, oh,
5: I look back on those as a wonderful portfolio of big crap. mistakes. <laughs> you <laughs> you know, right. I know. Any guy out who interviewed me right. who'd written one of those, yeah, you know, right. I would like, oh, yeah, you know everything, you know, right? Revitin, right? right. Yeah. I think, but it's quite understandable. in I mean, beer, double albums are always... You know, they have a lot going against them. First of all, the record company doesn't ever want to do them out because you don't sell as and they're more expensive, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and yeah. you don't get the volume. They, that's their theory. I oh, went yes. wrong on this occasion, but um, so you have to fight that, and then you have to fight what you know is coming kind like of, is that it's too much to be digested in one go, yes. and that people say, "Oh, well, that's good," but they, they're kind of you know that there's going to be a certain amount of confusion involved, you know, with so much material. Mm. Some people just won't concentrate on it the, or they'll pick up on it, but at the same time what thing that Exile like did, being that long, been, was that it just kept growing. Now. I mean, it just, it kept going until, you know, it, it made its mark, you know, over quite a period of time, really, very yeah. slowly it seeped in. It was. And so I guess you put that down to say, well, you know, double albums, you know, if you put out a great b- body of work at once, right, right. it's going to take, you know, that down. You that don't want to really do it too often. Done,
3: you know? <laughs> I, I mean, it's just, when I listened to that clip, I went back through all the reviews we have of Exile on, on our site, which is about four or five. Richard Williams, Melody Maker, loved it. Nick Kent in Friends, loved it. Roy okay. Carr and The NME, loved it. Just the one slightly tepid review <laughs> in Rolling Stone. And it's... That's now the received history of how that record
1: was oh, received. Rock stars are sensitive souls, aren't they? <laughs>
2: well, my, my point would be Keith agrees with me. We both <laughs> yeah. you know, like they didn't like it. You know, listen, here's maybe a very telling thing, and this is a great conversation. Never had this aspect of it is so. There we are on the '72 tour. They're not playing songs from Exile. Uh huh. They're playing the hits and Sticky Fingers. You know, they would do all down the line to no reaction. Like, no offense. I mean, the interesting thing was having seen Brown Sugar and Bitch performed in front of English audiences that had not heard the music, right? Sticking Fingers is not out there. Only the mm-hmm. Stones, Chaos and Anarchy. Like, dude, what are you doing? The album's not out. Why are you playing? Well, we want to, you know. They reacted to that because of the music was so great mm-hmm. that, you know, the English audiences back then, they didn't stand up and dance. There was some screaming. Maybe at the end they'd get up. But when they and, and they were playing smaller venues, but mm-hmm. on the exile tour, they did not play, they weren't out selling the album. Right. You know, Amit was crossing them over into another world, which he did brilliantly. Okay. That's what that yes. tour is, you know? That's, cool.
0: yeah. Yes. I mean and I mean if anyone has any doubts about how great they were live Mm. on that tour. You only have to see the Ladies and Gentlemen, the Rolling Stones film. I mean, it's just stunningly great. Do you you not think, Robert? Well, I would say that
2: the astonishing aspect to me of that tour, having seen them in England, having, you know, hung out with them in the south of France, was the acoustic set when Mick... And Mick Taylor and Keith would go to a you know, chipmunk, the the stage that cost more than the national treasury. You know what I mean? <laughs> money, just just throw the money. Go ahead, more, more. Give us more, you know? But the small stage, and they would play Sweet Virginia, and they would play the Robert Johnson song, One Light on the High, you know what I mean? Yeah,
3: yeah.
2: Three songs acoustic. Yeah. All three of them with guitars. I think Mick, too. And the place would go dead silent. You know how hard that is. Command an arena of 18,000 craze, revolutionaries. And, you know, it was a mad time in America as there is now. But they just silenced that audience. Listen, we're going to talk 72. I want to say one more thing, which maybe is not yeah. Yeah. directly related, but you have to give this band credit, the Rolling Stones, for breaking black acts in America to a white audience. And one of the great moments on the 72 tour was in Mobile, Alabama, okay, where I was always outside before the show started. And I swear to you, and I hope none of this sounds racist, but it is 50 years ago. The uh, venue was in a black neighborhood, basically a a phrase that I don't know if people use anymore, shotgun shacks. Really Mm -hmm. kind of old school, southern houses with a lot of older black people sitting. It was summer. It was hot on the porch. And I went and talked to people. Hi, how are you? You know, do you know who's playing here tonight? No. The Rolling Stones. You know who they are? No. Who are they? Okay, so we get that split and there were basically 18,000 white kids inside that arena and Stevie wonder and wonder love. They were at the peak. Mm-hmm. This, I mean, Oh my God. And I can't not believe that if, and although Otis Redding had been big, you could be big in the South and still have no contact. But I just felt that was a moment, not just for Stevie wonder, but for all those white kids, maybe on some level, it changed the way they perceived, you know, the race thing in the South. I think yes. so. I don't yeah. think you can be that, because ex- they were ecstatic. Stevie yeah, was yeah. getting, I mean, the Stone, everybody from the Stones dressing room, not everybody, I'm generalizing, but every night people would come out to watch him do, you know, Superwoman and Superstition. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. Th- that's how great they were. So they, yes. broke I Cantina, they broke Ike and They broke B.B. King. You know, yes. Bill Graham did this, but the Stones, mm-hmm. they really did pay respect to where their music came
0: from. Yes, I think that's okay. absolutely accurate. So your classic 1974 book, STP, came out of this tour, obviously, as did Cock Blues, the film that very few people have seen by Robert Frank. I've seen Not
2: very good. Gosh. It, well, well, I wouldn't, it's, I, I wouldn't it's, say that, you know.
0: It's, it's interesting. Uh, <laughs> there isn't there isn't as much great music in it, obviously, as in, ladies and gentlemen, The Rolling Stones. But obviously right. it has some notorious That's- scenes in it, and it's part of the Stones' mythology, isn't it? Right. I mean, was did you... Just a matter of interest, you connected with Robert Frank on that oh, yeah. tour, I'm assuming. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, absolutely,
2: yeah, yeah. I mean, so, so here's what's utterly bizarre, and I'll take this uh, incredible opportunity to uh, plug myself, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, although I haven't been doing that so far at all. So uh, <laughs> iHeartRadio, thanks to uh, Gary Stromberg, who was the publicity person on that tour, he and I are about to do a 12-episode podcast on that tour. And in the, wow. course, in the course of it, the young producers, as I will call them, who know more about the subject than I do at this point, asked me if I had anything that they could use. And I don't pay attention to stuff like that. And my I've sold my archives. And anyway, I discovered, they discovered. No, I discovered it. And then they digitized it. I, it had never been transcribed. I was the only person who'd ever heard it. I have 63 hours of tape of interviews that I did after the tour was over with everybody, Keith and Mick and... You know, and and Stu and all these people, and so I don't even remember what you asked me, Barney. What was the question, <laughs> Robert Frank? I was plugging uh, myself, but yeah. Oh, Robert Frank. Well, I interviewed Robert. I interviewed Robert, and and he made the film with a, a lovely guy named Danny Seymour, who vanished after the tour and died on his yacht. And I mean, Robert had made this great movie, this great film about. Allen Ginsberg's brother, was an artist of major proportions. His book, The Americans, is one of the great...
3: Oh, it's a fantastic book. It's it's unbelievable, Uh, right?
2: Kerouac said of him, You Got Eyes, which is a great thing to say. Robert was really serious, and he hated the tour. He'd never been exposed to something like that. And listen, this is a long time ago, before documentaries became quasi-fictional. But they staged so much stuff. For that documentary, I mean, Keith throwing the television out the window in Denver, which people have got in the wrong city. The groupies on the plane, all arranged, all didn't happen. Didn't wasn't Robert was not interested in making a concert film. The great scene of Keith nodding out is incredible in that movie, but I get it. And then of course, Jagger sat on it, controlled it what do we think 30 years
0: more mm-hmm. yeah. i saw a special screening at the ICA sometime in the 80s, but it's very, wow. it's still pretty hard to see it. I guess it might be on YouTube. I've never looked.
1: Yeah. Well, wasn't there like a ruling that Robert Frank had to be he present? He had to be there. So, that by be, definition limits it, it, the Well, they of won't be showing it anymore.
0: That's a horrible <laughs> No, exactly. To say. Yeah. I think you should insist on being present, Robert, whenever anyone reads STP. Right, I, could, I could watch them,
2: I could watch them and, and be in pain, you know? So, <laughs> but, uh, listen, fair. I will also say, and this is not plugging, of interest 50 years on stp was the first full-length book ever published about a rock tour and i i say this to and barney has some sense of it i'm sure mark does as well yeah it wasn't a mainstream topic publishing is still in the 19th century so far as i can tell and and it was a risk that who would buy a book about a rock and roll tour or who would buy a book? Of, that's how long ago this was, you know. And so, it, what? I'll show you the hardback, but they printed fifteen hundred copies. Right? Wow, that's unbelievable, <laughs> isn't
0: it? Well, I mean, it's an incredibly important Stones book in the well, sort thank of you. you know canon of Stones yeah. literature. It's right up there. I know Mark and I both read it, you know, Absolutely way back when. It. I didn't yeah, read I it in what, actually, but it, I, I
3: reread yeah. it for the third time earlier this well, year. thank you. You know, I don't reread.
1: Well,
2: one of the <laughs> one of the producers on the podcast told me he has three hundred pages of notes, and I said, Bro, <laughs> th- "That's longer than the book."
0: Okay. <laughs> well, I don't know, you know. Yeah. Well, the second piece that we're running is is july 72 and it puts you right in the kind of eye of the of the storm everything's right everything's underway and you're talking to peter rudge and you're you're talking to joe bergman and so forth and and it's the scale of the thing is is it's quite I mean, this fantastic quote from Chip monk you know kind of going why why do we do this he goes right. i'm getting like 1200 bucks a week for it. Not great pay, and it's been four months' work already. Sometimes <laughs> in the morning I say, fuck it. I must be an asshole. <laughs> but then on stage when it's working right and I'm almost falling into Nicky Hopkins' piano, I know wow. why. Take a look wow. at all of us, Peter, Joe, Alan. It can't be the money. There's not enough to pay them for, for what they've been through. So tell me why. Why are we doing all this?
2: <laughs> I love it. Well, here, here's the deal. It was the immensity of the undertaking. And it's, again, hard to remember or imagine Mm. when we, because I was part of it, when we would arrive in a city, it was on the front page of the newspaper. They were front page news. Stone's Stones playing tonight in Minneapolis. And the coverage, the press coverage, it was not a, it was like a major event in the culture at that time. And it was a military campaign. And Rudge was obsessed and trying to do it all right. Uh, The level of it was astonishing. You know, they stayed on their own floor in a hotel and you couldn't get up there in the elevator. And, you know, after the English tour, it was insane. It was like like a presidential jaunt somewhere. And, And just just because I was so affected by his passing. I'll tell you a quick Charlie Watts story, which is particularly English. So the way the Stones got out of the arena, Elvis has left the building. Right, as the crowd was still screaming like crazy. Mm. They knew if they used black limos, everybody would be all over them, pounding on the windshields and all the stuff we've seen. So they had a camper, an old school, ugly, you know, nobody had campers back then. It was something in the kind of like a southern thing, and you went away for the weekend to go fish. And they'd pull the camper into the arena behind the stage. As soon as they were done, they'd done the one encore, the one song encore. They'd run like crazy into the camper. I think Stu would drive it because he wouldn't let anybody else get behind the wheel. And the camp- nobody would bother looking at this camper. OK, like who cares? And that's how they would get out and either go to the airport or get to the hotel. So because it was like covering a war, I mean, it sounds pretentious, but it was an ongoing story. I was writing on the road. I was filing on the road. And we were in Dallas. Houston. We were in Houston. The camper was backstage and I I had a little portable typewriter and acoustic I should mention. And so <laughs> I'm in the camper and I'm writing a story. Now we're back to somebody looking at you when you're when they're reading and I, I have my head down and there's a window in the camper and I have the sense that somebody is looking at me and I look up and it's Charlie. Okay. And Charlie's about to go on stage. And what he's doing is spinning the drumsticks in either hand without looking at it, right? Which he could do so incredibly well. And I'm look, I look up and he's looking at me and he said, you're doing your sums. Is it, <laughs> it, it, it is that your homework? <laughs> and I, I said, Charlie, I got this fucking story. I got a. All right, then carry on. And he just wandered off to go on stage. And Uh, I mean, I I just need to celebrate this human being. Yeah. You know, as always the adult in the room, the sweetest, kindest, most charming. I mean, I can't explain how deeply I was affected by his loss because one of the great gentlemen that I've ever known in my life. Yeah, he really was. He really was.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, we we recently added a, a a wonderful audio interview with with Charlie and and it was so lovely to listen to it. It wasn't we didn't get a hold of this immediately after he died, but a few months uh-huh. after and it and it was Such a a pleasure to listen to it. I think we were doing a podcast episode with Norman Jopling, who was the first guy really to write about the Stones in nineteen sixty-two. So we were Ah. playing clips to him and it was it felt very poignant. In connection with that, Robert, I mean I I, in the nineteen in this July seventy-two piece. You ask both Mick and Keith, I think, is this going to be the last tour? <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, great great uh, question, Bob. Yeah. Good question. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. could really ask, is this going to be the last good ah. tour? Because yeah, let's really. face it, I mean, when I saw them the first time, which was uh, at Earl's Court in 76. Yeah, me too. It, it was just, it was, to me, Awful. the rot had set in. Everything, had, all the rot had set in. The Stones were wow. already like a bloated joke at that point. So wow. yeah. when I then saw Ladies and Gentlemen the Rolling Stones years later, I'm like, oh, my God, what I wouldn't have given to see that tour. A, because Keith, Keith was like still had it together. But 76, he was just like yeah, fucked. Yeah. I mean, yeah, i assume yeah. seen him in 75 yeah. in America, yeah. Which yeah. I didn't see. I've he was pretty fucked there, but he was really fucked at Earl's Court. Yeah, yeah.
3: I mean, the, the other thing is that, like, when they took in 71, I was starting to go and see bands at the Alba Hall. was like 15 or something, 1971. You couldn't – they only played one night at the Roundhouse. That's I correct. That's correct. You know, I mean, Roundhouse holds 2,000 people. I've heard that they simply couldn't book anywhere because no one wanted them because they uh-huh. had this reputation. I don't know if uh-huh. that's true or not. But just to play one night at Roundhouse in 71, I mean, who could get a ticket to that?
2: None well, of us. Well, Mark, listen, they wanted to play the Roundhouse because it was the venue of choice at sure. that point. That Albert was Hall, but I agree with you. I don't think Albert Hall would have had them. Okay? I don't think yeah. so. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. but there was no there was no bother during that tour. You know, people were so grateful to see them, and it was a it was a good show at the Roundhouse. It wasn't one of the great shows.
3: If you go into the streaming music service of your choice and look for the Sticky Fingers Deluxe Edition, it's got
2: about (laughs) an hour of them playing at
3: Leeds and at the Roundhouse live stuff, and it's it's great Rolling Stones.
2: OK, Absolutely well, good, you know, good. again, this is I, only the English get into this level of, of perception on anything, which is why I love living in London. I would I, I would say to you just to be the spoiler, the lead show, which they were hoping. OK, so the Stones following the Beatles. Well, the who had made live at Leeds. Right. The right. Greatest, lo, greatest live rock album of all time. We all sure. agree. We won't even discuss it. So they brought, <laughs> they, they, brought they brought they brought they brought Glenn yeah. Johns to lead Monkey See, Monkey Do. Right? Yeah, yeah. We're going to record. they did in like a very primitive venue. We were all sitting in the canteen before. Glenn was there, you know. I love Glenn. Came in and complained. Oh, it was fucking awful. Sal, you guys are terrible. Here's what... You need to do this. He, you know, <laughs> to my memory, there was one show, I think it was Newcastle, where they did They did an encore. It was the only... And again, every show was good. Some mm-hmm. were better than others. And... There was more of a level of regular competency in mm-hmm. America, and no. And, right. and listen, if I'm going to make another statement, I guess I have the right. No one understands how brilliant Mick Taylor was. Oh, he was oh I think we do. Believable, <laughs> I think we a, do. And incredible, <laughs> you well, you do. Yeah, but a, a, you know, an incredible player, totally oh. revitalized that band.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: It's a tragedy, you know. Yeah. That, that he came I, and I went mean and I, I listened I to all down me.
0: the line this morning just kind of Thank getting you. ready for this and Thank when you. when his slide comes <laughs> in on that it's just like oh my god
3: The other thing is, because he was so clearly a lead guitarist rather than anything else, it left room for Keith's rhythm playing. Yes. And the moment Ronnie Wood came in, it's two blokes doing more or less the same thing, and it blurs it. Yes. And just hearing Keith like that with Charlie Watts, just sort of
2: like, you know, nailing it down. You know, and also, also the, this is the problem with getting old, you know, and I don't hope before I die that I get old. But, you know, <laughs> Mick, Mick Taylor was this another one of the sweetest human beings of all right. time. I mean, yes. truly an angelic person who fell into the stones and like so many others, you know what I mean, did not come out of it in better shape than he went
0: Sure. No. Sure. I saw the Stones in Hyde Park whenever that was a few years ago, and Mick Taylor came on as a guest to play a couple of songs. I think he, well, the one I remember is Midnight Rambler, ah. and it was this extraordinary, like sparring thing that he did with Jagger. Yeah, and he was, and he was playing in this really aggressive way, almost like wow. pushing Jagger wow. to the side. And it was kind of, to me; it was like saying, yeah. "Look what hey, you bet. fucking missed." Yes. This is what I did for you. And you you basically froze me out and brought in your mate because he was just was just mm. you wanted bonner um, mate. All right,
2: so so let me cast a vote for the alternate party here. I have yeah, to sure. I did see them at the roundhouse. I saw the mm. it would have been the faces at that point. So I saw them, you know, in yeah, seventy yeah. in seventy. Good yep. lord. And so I mean Ronnie Wood has kept the Stones alive. I mean, I have great sure. respect for him. As a player, no. What do we think? No, actually,
3: he's fine. He's just, (laughs) you know, he's not. He's not the the best Rolling Stones band was the one with Mick Taylor in it. Yeah,
0: because of the real yin and yang contrast there between. Correct, because Mick was another
2: generation.
0: Yeah, that's the point.
2: And he played. I mean, the Santana leads, and can't you hear me knocking? Yeah. You know, oh, it's yes. just yeah. I mean, he took them to another level sure. and he was brilliant on stage, you know, and you're right. Yeah. He and Keith complimented one another and they could switch
0: off. The exactly. Beautiful combination, wasn't it? Yeah. So look, I mean, I think we've probably said all we need to say about. Can, can, can I
3: just say one, one thing, more because thing? Because
0: tomorrow is gonna to
3: be the fifth and tomorrow, <laughs> tomorrow is gonna to be the 50, the fiftieth anniversary of the night I saw the grateful dead at the Lyceum on the nineteen seventy-two uh, European uh, tour. What yes. are the great shows? I've seen in my life. They were great on that tour, live well, and, and of course, yeah. your oral biography of Jerry Garcia, Dark Star, is just a fantastic. Reminds. Very dispiriting, quite depressing read. His kind uh-huh. of plunge into narcotics in his later yeah. life, sort of stuff. Yeah, but no, I mean, I'm, I'm. I have to say, I'm an unreconstituted unre- un- 1968 to 72 deadhead. Mm. And, <laughs> and so, yeah. 50 years ago, at the age of 16, there I was at the Lyceum in the Strand, sat in front of the stage watching. Just the most marvelous band.
0: I Shall we leave that. it at that, Barney? Shall we well, move I, swiftly on? <laughs> no, I'm glad, you, I'm glad you mentioned Europe '72 because in a way it was where I came in with the Dead. And um, I love it. Let's talk I, about I, the It's dead. a wonderful triple live album, isn't it? It's just a gorgeous thing. Yes, it is. Yes, yes, it, it is. is. It
2: is. What I would say, and I have gone through this. You know, when people ask me if I'm a Deadhead, I say no. I'm Jewish. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, well, that's just the way it is, and so <laughs> I, I I don't know what to say in terms of I've written you know between Jerry and Owsley yes and Barlow I've basically written three books yep. about the dead right yeah yes. my dead tri- my dead trilogy my stones trilogy you yeah know? two trilogies absolutely two trilogies. And so I would say to you, I mean, Pete Townsend had a great comment, who is a great commenter uh, too, at the least, you know, when they played with the dead. Imagine seeing the who and the dead. The, <laughs> uh, I have the I have the poster behind me in this office, you know, and and Pete said that the dead and their people were like a band of gypsies moving slowly through the world. Mm-hmm. You get that right. The yes, difference yes. between like no set lists. Wow. Mm-hmm. You don't know what you're going to play today. And then the other great story is Jerry and Pete before the show. And I think Pete said it to Jerry, two of them with guitars. I don't know how this is going to turn out, but let's play some Bach. <laughs>
3: That's very <laughs> <fairly> mind-bending idea. I
2: don't know. I wasn't okay. there. I, I
0: think I – mean, I'm wonderful. sure it ended
2: – but, I mean, what a thing to say. I mean, like yeah, – yeah. Jerry was also, I had a great experience with Jerry because he was talking about Bill Graham. And Jerry is a, you guys really understand this. Often you meet people that you love and respect and they're less, right? And that's why I stopped going backstage. You don't Mm want to meet these. If you really love the music, you don't need to meet the musician, you know. But Jerry was something in person. He was a massive brain. He had a, a huge intellect, had amazing charisma, was a truly lovely, funny human being, and the fan, it just got to him. He couldn't handle it. Man. Yeah. yeah. Couldn't take it. Yes.
4: Got my chips cached in. Keep trucking. Like the dude I've Together. More or less in life. Just keep trucking. Oh, oh, oh.
0: Well, wonderful. The Dead Stones. Yeah, I was just. Thinking about your your trilogies, it just occurred to me as, <laughs> I didn't, as you were. Talking, I didn't intend so, them. I, didn't, I didn't intend them. No, to no, be no. I understand. It's tremendous work. So, anyone listening, Perfect. go go get Robert's books. They're all tremendous. Yeah. We're going to move out of Greenfield World briefly into the week's audio. Mark, will you tell us a little bit about the week's audio?
3: Yeah, it's it's Jerry Jeff Walker, country singer songwriter of the sort of the The sort of semi-outlaw variety, I think it's fair to say. Interviewed by John Tobler in 1992. Very articulate, very amusing guy. He talks about how he's very happy with his place in the musical world. Not massively successful, but can earn a living playing like, you know, eight shows a month or something around Texas and so on and so forth. He talks about the records he's made that he likes the most. Let's listen to the first clip. He talks about meeting the real Mr. Bojangles. Mr. Bojangles being his Big hit record. Let's have a listen to him talk about the real Bojangles.
4: A new man, Bojangles, and he danced for you. Good worn out shoes. You've met
1: Mr. Bojangles himself when you were in jail in mm-hmm. New Orleans. Yes. True story. Old guy. Yes. A dancer. Mm hmm. I and mean, were you aware of him before
4: that? No, and I never saw him since, so it was just a little brief period of time there. Right, I mean, so you don't know what his reaction was, to you write his uh, story? No, I don't even know if he knows it was him. Who He probably doesn't listen much to the radio. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um,
1: it was just that moment of magic.
4: That yes, that. and I was speaking earlier too the fact that I had just in that period of time i had been listening to some recordings of dylan thomas doing his own works and i was became aware of what was called internal rhymes which i had never done before and so that's what triggered the song over was it was a dancer a man with beats in his life and i had beats in the song Mm. Mm. he danced for those at minstrel shows and you know the boom boom and then and the, it kind of danced along and i was also uh, like to write in sort of a three four time a lot and this was a jazz waltz and it was kind of it, it fit many situations and the, and the show business community really adopted the song as, as there but, but but for fortune go i <laughs> Mr.
3: Yeah, no, it's good stuff. He talks about this uh, business associate manager called Michael Brodsky, who clearly kind of ripped him off. At one point, he he alludes to the fact that he's in real big trouble, the IRS. He talks about various characters. We'll play a clip at the end of the podcast where he talks about Guy Clark. And basically, he was the guy who sort of encouraged Guy Clark to write songs. Which is pretty interesting stuff. He talks very nicely about his long lasting marriage. You don't often get many musicians doing that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he talks about characters like Hondo Crouch, the kind of mayor of Looking Back, Texas. Well, let's have another clip. It's about Austin versus Nashville. Let's have a listen to this. Now
1: Austin doesn't have a major record label there, despite the fact that tons of talent
4: is from Austin at the moment.
5: Why, why is it? Is it just... Because they
4: want to take you somewhere and <laughs> rub your rough edges off. <laughs> and uh, that's what a guy says. Yeah, They round you off so so smooth that nobody can pick you up.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. Obviously that may refer to Nashville. <laughs> yeah.
4: Yeah. Well, uh, there's that's where their business is. Those guys... Own all those studios and want to run all the bills up where Where their people are so? um, Yeah, I understand that and uh, that's Something that goes on I can't change any of that and uh, We're not really in the business of the business. I mean, we're in the business of having a life and You have to raise your children and you have to have your friendships and uh, the people that come to Austin somebody once told me this about going to Alaska is you never have to ask anyone else why they're there <laughs> save it south of Oklahoma east of New Mexico west of Louisiana where Bobby Charles always go. we got a little place we call Texas where the women Go on, yeah. <laughs> I
3: love um, it. It's, it's a really nice interview. He, he comes over as kind of a, a, you know thoroughly decent chap. that There's a great chunk of the interview is about playing golf. He's very <laughs> proud of his six handicap as it was, and. Um, <laughs> Uh, i would, <laughs> you can almost hear john tober's bafflement through the tape yeah but no, no it's, it's nice stuff it's nice
0: yeah stuff. it's it's lo- i just explain why we're running this is because steve Earle is this week releasing an album called jerry jeff and it's the third of his kind of tribute albums to these texan Outlaws, semi outlaws that he mm-hmm. referred to, these Austin guys. And in the interview, Jerry Jeff alludes to them. So the first of Steve's albums was was Towns, which is 2009, which is Towns Van Zandt. Then he did one for Guy Clark out of 2019. And then Jerry Jeff has followed, you know, much faster on the heels of that. So it's it's another trilogy, Robert. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's a kind of Austin trilogy. And so you can already hear steve's version of mr bojangles uh jerry jeff's most famous song you can hear that on spotify and it's and it's and it's really lovely i mean actually it's you know typically with steve it's more it's more kind of broken and grainy and raw than the original but i love listening to this and i mean i know he's not a very well-known figure in many ways and i don't know a huge amount about the austin scene but this guy was important wasn't he in terms of you know, helping to put Austin on the map, I think, and really encouraging people like Guy Clark to yeah. write. And you'll yeah. hear that in the clip that we're playing when, when we go out at the end of the episode. Yeah. Is this music that means anything to you, Robert? Does, I mean, are you, do yes. you like country, yes. alternative country, oh, yes. Austin country? Oh, yes. yeah.
2: yeah. So there, there is, uh, and I, I feel like I'm setting you loose on the trail here of finding it. There's an incredible documentary about Jerry Jeff made by someone who I've become friendly with, Patrick Tourville. That's not been released. Jerry Jeff's widow controls it. Jerry Jeff, and I know this, I know Jerry Jeff two ways. One, Mr. Bojangle started in New York when I was living in my parents' house. At WBAI Radio, which was famous in its time, and a guy named Bob Fass, who was on all night, his show was called Radio Unnameable. Yes. Jerry, what would, would you know? You would hear, I would hear Mr. Bojangles at two o'clock in the morning, and it just was, you know, in your brain. It was yeah. one of those songs that lodged in it. The thing about the documentary, and this is the reason back to the stones that they're still working, and I never knew it till I saw this film. Jerry Jeff Walker was incredible live. You don't get it from Bojangles, you think, right. Oh, he could. His band was insane, and he is the progenitor of Austin. He mm-hmm. really is. He, I mean, if he to, if he told Guy Clark to write, okay, yeah, and, and I did it. You know, one of the articles I did for Fusion could be one of the few you don't have. I spent a day in New York with Towns. Did you? Yeah. Wow. Oh my. Yeah. And what oh. did we do? looking for a joint?
0: <laughs> we we have to find that. Not did a you j- find,
2: Did you find a joint? No. <laughs> Still haven't no. found it. <laughs> no. It was it was winter in New York and there was oh none my of God. These are the albums of the Milton Glaser co- uh, label the t- right. Tomato
0: Records what was it? Tomato. Yeah, Tomato.
2: Yes. And my Mother the Mountain Caroline all that I mean, Towns was another one of the uh,
0: the real thing. I mean, I love the fact that Jerry Jeff alludes to Dylan Thomas in it's that incredible. in that clip because you know all these guys were were really literary. You know, they were all well read, weren't they? I mean, Guy and and Towns and of course Steve L. I I mean, they're all they're all very literary writers.
2: I've spent the last four years of my life working on what I hope will be the definitive biography of Sam Shepard. Right, and yes. Sam again, the mix in Austin. Sam was part of the Austin scene. All these, well, he could drink with those guys, too. <laughs> which yeah. is,
0: drink drink, and literature. <laughs> it's the, it's the, well, it's Texas. It's the, yes, it's, it's Texas. So, so Sam
3: Shepard's the guy who glues the New York of Patty Smith to the Austin of Towns Van Zandt.
2: What a great yes. thing to say, yeah. I didn't yes. think about that. I mean, they, I didn't know this taking on the book, but Sam was so rock and roll, and he brought rock and roll to theatre, legitimate mm-hmm. theatre. He was the first person... To do this, wrote plays about rock and roll, and had encyclopedic knowledge of the music, and was was in the Holy Modal Rounders, the drummer. Wow!
0: Yeah, of course, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Wait, I tell you what, we should just segue straight into Bob Newirth. We need to just say a couple of things about Bob Newirth. I think um, <sighs> who died last week, because you know he's in this, he's in this milieu as well, isn't he? I mean, he's well, he's, he's in the Shepherd book because of the, the
2: Shepherd is on the. On the you know on the tour the Rolling Thunder tour exactly and Bob, Bobby Newirth is on that tour and B- Bobby Newirth was with Patty before she was with Sam. I mean it was so small back then in New York. It was all mm-hmm. Max Max's Kansas City. You know mm-hmm. everybody on a given night would be at one table or another in Max's Kansas City. And you know I didn't know Bobby personally. I mean everybody knew him then as Dylan's doppelganger. That's a yeah. word you don't hear a lot on these podcasts, okay?
0: And, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, so we ran this Alaronowitz piece. It's oh, epic. I read piece it, right? And piece. it's amazing. So it just starts. It's mainly about Thomas Jefferson Kay, really. Right. But it starts off explaining why Bobby Neweth was like the stars, the stars superstar. So no, nobody, nobody outside of that world really knew who Neweth was, even if they'd maybe seen "Don't Look Back." But I mean, I remember. Ar- saying to me, I could never work out whether Bob Dylan was basing his persona on Bobby Newerth or the other way round. I think it was the former, which is pretty interesting. So when you see Don't Look Back, you see Dylan being Really cruel and horrible. Like, nasty. Sorry, yeah. Nasty. Nasty. I mean, it is nasty. It's pretty unsavory. And they left it in, you know. I mean, I remember this great quote. Panabaker said to Grossman, Are you sure you want to be portrayed in this way in the film? Uh, and Albert uh. said, I'm really comfortable with it.
2: <laughs> well, well, you know, how about in Don't Look Back? They're yeah, going into the hotel. Yeah. yeah. And the yeah. guy says to Dylan and, and Newerth are in front. Grossman's yeah. behind them. And, and the guy says, Is he with you? Pointing yes. to Grossman? Dylan said, nah, we're all thin and he's fat.
0: <laughs> that, I didn't lo- even
2: remember that. that. Well, yeah. How could you forget that? That's lovely. Yeah. Listen, this is interesting. Try to go meta on everything. What no one understands, and I was there then, which helped me write the Shepherd book because I kind of went parallel. Yeah. That was in places he was in. We were there together. No one understands how mean New York was yeah. in that era, the Lower East Side. This was not fun and games, man. These people, the, the Chelsea Hotel, they were all on the make. They were all looking to become somebody. They were all using and sleeping with one another. Okay. So it's just the way it was. New York was awful. awful yes. Back yes. then.
0: Okay. Yes. And when you <laughs> see New Earth talking in that just awful way to Joan Buyers and don't look back, it's just, it's just, so, it's utter humiliation. I'm not going to put it kind on of a Misogynistic tint on that. It's just straight humiliation with Dylan typing away in the background. It's it's yeah, cruelty. Cruelty was yeah. the name of the game, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, yes, it was.
2: Fueled by what are we talking with amphetamines? You know, yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, Exactly. He jacked up. I mean, see, yeah, Sam was using methamphetamine, writing these plays, and it was uh, you know. Listen, this is why I went to London. It was an awful place to be, and the people who survived it. It was not an accident. They were bound for glory. You know, they were going to get out and be somebody.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, let's not take everything away from Neewith in this because, (laughs) you know, he was important and many people thought he was the kind of gatekeeper to Dylan. And he gave very few interviews. Uh, He was in No Direction Home, Scorsese's film. But I mean, and he made a number of records in the kind of folk country Like Mm -hmm. idiom, he wasn't a great singer. I don't think he was really a great songwriter, but he was like a fascinating character in the story, wasn't he? Absolutely. OK, so we also more recently, just literally a few days ago, learned that we had lost Carl Coughlin, who was in the original Micro Disney and formed Fatima Mansions and was a really you know, important figure here. And Mark, w- yeah. would you tell us a bit about him? Because you knew him.
3: Yeah, no, uh, uh, I mean, around uh, eighty-two, eighty-three, um, I got signed to my first music publishing deal. And the A&R man who signed me was Tom Fenner, the drummer of Micro Disney. And so I got to know the band. I'd go and see them every time I played in London. They were booked to play the Ogre Whistle Test and they drafted me in to play synthesizer. (laughs) Cahill showed me his parts and he's got, he had big hands and I could barely stretch to make these chords that he played. Wow. Uh, he swore I had to play them exactly the same as he did. <laughs> of course, I, I actually kind of dropped the old note off when it came. When push came to shove, how could you? So I got to know the band with Sean O'Hagan, Tom. I got to know the real world. Well. Tom is and remains a good friend. Cahill then went on to when the band broke up, form Fatima Mansions, who. Got a lot of critical success. Then, obviously, you know the road of being a professional musician runs out, and he started working, I believe, at the BBC in the sort of digital area. But continued making music. Um, quite not so many years ago, he made a an album called North Sea Scrolls with Andrew Mueller, who's one of our writers, and Luke Haynes got a huge amount of praise for that. Just a, a few months back, released his. Uh, solo album song of co clan and had just actually recorded and finished an album called Telephys with Jack Knife Lee produ- uh, as the producer no i mean he's an extraordinary character very strong stage performer you know he's a big man a big strong presence i share a lot of friends with him and he'll be very very much missed it's not, at the age of 61 it's far too young yeah
1: very sad very sad thanks mark We should perhaps also mention the one and only Vangelis oh, who died last week. I, I'm
0: so glad, so glad you're, you're willing to, to, to run with that ball, jazz. No, I, Go
1: for I, it. my angle for running with it was just actually that Alexis Petridis wrote a nice piece about him in The Guardian last yes. week. Just I thought it was a kind of... Because obviously, you know, he is chariots of fire blade runner i mean blade Runner. i love fantastic the blade soundtrack runner actually Fuck. it's brilliant yeah. and so yeah. you know it's it's i think a little bit unfair to, to typecast him as just a kind of slightly naff in retrospect film composer and Alexis Petridis concludes this so Vangelis Papathanasio ended up not just a garlanded soundtrack composer the go-to guy if he needed something stirring and epic for a major event an electronic music pioneer and the driving force behind Greece's most influential rock band but the thread that improbably linked Rotting Christ Donna Summer, Boards of Canada, Jay-Z and The Verve. It wasn't what he set out to do, but as musical legacies go, it's a
0: suitably unique achievement. Pretty good. <laughs> Which I think is pretty, pretty That's good. That's nice. Yeah. Thank yeah. you, Jasper. <laughs> 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 we, we didn't forget you, Vandera. And you're right. You know, I listened to, to the Blade Runner soundtrack again after, uh, after he died, and, and the, the, the music is such an important part of that film, isn't it? I mean, it is a little bit naff, but it's actually really kind of – it's yeah. really appropriate it's, and beautiful, I think.
1: Yeah there's a reason his stuff got sampled yep. by outcast and jay-z yes. and company flow and jay diller right. like there was something there to give them the the textures that they wanted and yes. the ideas they wanted yeah so i think that's
0: fantastic that's credit in my brilliant opinion. Mark, would you talk us through the pieces that you've most enjoyed loading in the last two weeks?
3: Yeah, well, I'll keep this really short. A few things. Uh, Scott Walker, interviewed by Maureen O'Grady Rave, 1968, saying, I want a woman to have my children without having to marry her. An arrangement that would be legal with full consent. He also says, <laughs> people, people ask me why I'm not avant-garde, but I'm not interested in pop art or camp music. I don't believe in wild progressions and trends. (laughs) So we see the original Baby Daddy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This this is now, this I really like. It's Diane Stillman, Rolling Stone in 1977, meets into these Cholly Atkins, who's the great choreographer of all the Motown bands. Mm. And she she writes each pip, this is Gladys Knight, the, the pips rehearsing their dance moves. Each pip begins by standing as a Dixie Cup that serves as a marker. Atkins turns on the cassette, and the pips begin to dance. In unison, they strut to one side and then the other, kick their legs up, do some fancy footwork, and then propel to a stop in front of their Dixie cups. The whole thing lasts 35 seconds. Atkins rewinds the tape and is ready to start again. I'll bet you thought all this was natural, he chuckles. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, that's great. super. <laughs> oh, <that's laughs> I love that.
3: <laughs> love that kind of thing. <laughs> um, that's super. Uh, nice thing, Philip Elwood saw The whalers not before they became Bob Marley and Whalers, and it's just the Whalers at uh, the Matrix in San Francisco in 73. He says, The Wailers at the Matrix are a Jamaican sextet who play primarily rhythmic material of indescribable complexity and are headed by singer Bob Marley, a most impressive performer and composer. The way this music is generally called reggae, inverted commas. (laughs) uh, (laughs) a, A form which has emerged out of various segments of Jamaican life and has recently become something special in pop music around the Western world. Reggae is played by the Wailers as a composite and collective musical expression. Each of the band's six members needs the other for full expression, yet the ensemble is, in fact, a rather loose-knit instrumental group in which even rhythms are not necessarily constant. I mean, this is a guy trying to get his head around reggae. He <laughs> clearly has very, <laughs> very, very little experience of it. But it's, 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 I think it's, it's, it's nice a nice though. piece of rock. Did, good, you, know of
0: Alwood, yes, Did that, you know Philip Elwood, Robert? Did you know Philip? Yeah. Yes, I figured of course. you must have crossed, crossed his path. Yes, of course.
3: Right. Yeah, yeah. We, well, one of his sons gave us permission to run his stuff. And what's great is it goes so far back. He's writing like in 1962 about Ella Fitzgerald and so on. And I've reached 1980 with grabbing his stuff, and there's still another sort of 20 years of stuff to go. I
2: mean... <laughs> he, he, <laughs> he, he was he was absolutely the elder statesman, you
3: know. Yeah, yeah. What's nice is that... that you, who's the great uh, San Francisco critic? Ralph J. Gleason. Yeah, yeah. Ralph J. Gleason. It, is that the two of them were... Writing for effectively, essentially comp- competing papers. But they were clearly great friends because all, they seem to be around at each other's houses all the time. Wow, you know? I didn't know that. Yeah, oh. no, it's, it's, it's very nice. Last piece I was going to mention takes us up to 1994 is Dave, the wonderful David Toop interviewing the Aphex twin for the, the Times. Oh. I forget which which of the what's his name. There's only yeah, one, well, what, Richard, Richard D. James. That's right. He says they that is dance music producers are people you can't hold a conversation with. People like <laughs> me, people <laughs> like me, bedroom bores coming into the public eye. That's quite amusing. <laughs> 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 but that's so. Uh, that's my lot. Jasper, have you got anything to? Yeah, I'll mention a couple of quick
1: things. First of which is an article called Street Life from Jockey Slut in December 2001. It's about his interview with The Streets that Mark, you scanned for us, which is great. And he's a funny guy, Mike Skinner. Music's really conservative, he opines. If a house record comes out and it's got one different noise in it, people go, ooh, it's defining a genre. (laughs) (laughs) The streets, however, from the lo-fi production to Skinner's unique Brahm enunciation, which, notice I'm not trying to emulate, genuinely sounds like nothing else around. I used to do hip-hop and use an American accent like everyone else, he freely admits. It sounded shit.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I really the original Love the pirate ma- original pirate material that first of yeah. is still a fantastic record. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I quite like the fact that he made a couple of other records, but he hasn't sort of pursued it in a mad sort of way. Like he has to keep churning
0: stuff out. And he's a maybe- very interesting guy, I think. Very, I really very, do. Yeah, yeah. You know, he still does worthwhile stuff, and he's he he's just yeah. he's one of the, certainly one of the great brummies in my estimation. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Original pirate material. You're listening to the streets. down your aerial. Has it come to this? Original oh, 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 oh. pirate material. You're listening to the streets. down your aerial. Make yourself at home. We got diesel Lost some of that homegrown. The
1: other thing is Chantelle is the feisty feminist Rihanna. Lisa Verico in The Times in January 2009. And Chantelle is a I, I mean, I slightly forgotten kind of Barbadian pop. I mean, she's just never made it to the, to the heights right. of Rihanna. But it's an interesting article. And, and it's kind of at a time when she's trying to be a pop singer, but clearly still wants to be recording like soca and dancehall kind of inspired sounds. And the, she tells the story of how she got into music. And it was at eight she saw Disney's Little Mermaid and started singing. I literally wanted to be Ariel, have her tail and everything, she laughs. But it was Sebastian the Crab who really inspired me. He had exactly my accent. It sounds silly, but it was the first time I realised someone who sounded like me could sing pop. Mm-hmm. Which is it, actually kind of an
3: interesting point to make. And yeah, I just thought I'd mention It's So talk about Rihanna, the, the, when the West Indies cricket team were here last year. It turns out about three of them went to school with her. And they're still pals. And every time she kind of goes back to Barbados, they all sort of get together. <laughs> well,
1: Chantel was in like the army cadets or whatever with Rihanna right. and like was like a rank higher and could make, like forced her to do push-ups and stuff. That's also mentioned in this article.
0: It's, a, it's, it's
1: very funny. I love it. So that's my lot.
0: Wonderful. I think that brings us to the end of the episode. I will just mention in passing that, because I think, we said the other day we've been adding transcriptions of some of our audio interviews we're hoping at some point to have transcribed all you know 800 but that's some years (laughs) off I think but we did manage to complete a transcription of that Keith Richards interview I did in 1997 so if you want to refer to that uh, or just listen to it it's on Rock's Back Pages Funny and funny that. yeah funny that funny that so robert any last words you want to share with your vast global audience uh, well <laughs> I, I, I i don't know about that but i, I am <laughs> got <laughs> it's it's a small
2: cult as they say you know but so i must say gentlemen that in this college of musical knowledge that you have created not just on the web but today i am an entering freshman And it's not often that I speak to people who know so much more about so much more music than I do. And so this is why, and this is an unheralded plug: Rock's Back Pages is is such a valuable effort. It is the ultimate archive. And the fact that someone who has been doing this as long as I have to read, because I grew up in, in Brooklyn, reading Al Aronowitz in the New York Post. I mean, the guys, you yes. know, the only guys who were writing back then were Richard Goldstein in The Voice, you have him, and Al Aronowitz, who I never met, in The Post. And so that article was extraordinary. I mean, this is something so far beyond, well, it is the music as the culture that we understand nice. that needs to be whether anything is going to last, you know, beyond, you get what I'm saying, yeah, without no. saying it. But this is so... I can, you're doing God's work, gentlemen.
0: Oh, that's very kind of you. That's very, 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 kind, very kind of you, you to say that. <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. You know, that means a hell of a lot. It's really... I mean, it, we're honoured to have you on Rocks. Oh, God, so I have no. to tell you, I mean, you're one of the greats. And it wouldn't be the same without you on it. And I... You know, so I, I we're incredibly grateful that you came on board when you did. I was thinking, you know, because your amazing Armand Ertigan biography, I remember we we featured that and that's already 11 years old. It yeah, feels right. like the other day that I was <laughs> asking you, could you pull out something, you know, a nice excerpt from the book? And yeah. I was astonished to find that was 11 years ago. So uh, you've been on RBP for some time. Thank you. Thank you My for, pleasure. for, My for great being pleasure. part of it, really. And for for coming along today, um, joining us yeah. from 6,000 000- 6,000 long miles away. (laughs) You can have your breakfast now. (laughs) Um, I'm going going for a drink.
2: Yeah, Yeah, he's going for a drink. (laughs) He's going to the pub. And you're the only thing I thought, porridge. it's five o'clock, it's pub time in London. I know that. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. would love to go with you. That's
0: all I can <laughs> say. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah, we'd love it. We'll pull up a chair for you. At some point. point. <laughs> all right. Thank, but thank you, for guys. Thanks again join, for yeah. joining us so much. And, Mark, we're going out on the third and last clip from the Jerry Jeff Walker.
3: Yeah, you're talking about Guy Clark, his relationship with Guy Clark. Wonderful. Well, goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye.
4: was asleep on guy's couch. He was a a good musician, and and he was a craftsman. He was an artist, and he even built guitars for a while. But he never wrote anything. So Towns, Van Zant, and I used to stay with Guy whenever we came through town, and Guy was always looking at us like, how hard can it be? We kept telling him, it's not very hard. You just pick something you know about and write it down. So one day he wrote five songs. He wrote one, and I think the first one he wrote, he may tell you different. Was uh, I thought it was old time feeling, so yeah, which I liked, and I thought the imagery was great, and he was so. Successful. Then he went back upstairs, and then he wrote "L.A. Freeway," and he came back down, and then he went back up and wrote something else. I don't remember <laughs> what it was, but I remember those are the first two that I heard. Oh yeah. Really? And so I had a record deal, and I was going to record, and I thought, well, I'll do old time feeling on the record, and I went and I said, "Yeah, I'm going to play this song." I spoke to my people, you know, that were involved with the records and the and my office and everything and i said you ought to sign this guy because he's writing some really good material now and i said listen to this song i played old time feeling and they said that's not too bad uh, what else does he do and i said i played him l.a free with you you got to sing that one that's a hit
1: That was Jerry Jeff Walker in conversation with John Tobler in 1992, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Robert Greenfield. Find his books, including STP, A Journey Through America with the Rolling Stones, in all good bookshops. The hosts are Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com.